Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom, he, him, and Don Lister, she, her. A podcast from Anahata Yoga Centre, where we hold insightful, healing, and nurturing conversations with inspiring people from healing yoga and well-being communities. Enjoy our podcast. This is Dawn Lister, she, her, joined today by my co-host, as always, Daniel Groom. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Dawn. Um, I go by the pronouns he, him. It's lovely to be here with you today. Oh, nice to see you. And we are joined today by our beautiful guest, Kirsty Richardson. Uh, Kirsty is a movement and Alexander technique practitioner. Um, who I've known for quite a long time. We live very local to each other, so that's super handy. And um, we, we share a love of sea dipping. I call it dipping because I don't really swim. I just kind of flap around in a circle. But I, I think you probably swim a little bit more efficiently than I do, Kirsty. But welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. And I'm really excited to talk more with you about um, the Alexander Technique. So welcome. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> so how has everyone been this week? It's, um, it's been a busy one for me. It's been, a, I say busy, it's been a busy one lying down because I'm exhausted. I'm still flipping, struggling with long COVID. And it's been a particularly hard week. Um, so I'm feeling a bit flat about all of that, but I am pleased to be here and um, have a conversation with you guys. So Daniel, what have you been up to? Uh, but yeah, similar to you, Dawn, I've had a really busy but very productive week. I feel like um, I got quite a lot done, including my personal returns that were hanging over me, <laughs> which I was just like, I need to get them out the door. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I dedicated quite a lot of time over the weekend to do it. Um, but uh, Dawn and I were talking yesterday um, on text about the Met Gala and just how amazing it was this year and for you know you may have seen it on social media or in the news but it's it's a real kind of interesting celebration of creativity of of very influential people um in New York um I think it was started by Anna Wintour um who's the um editor-in-chief of Vogue and she was invited to years ago bring together a group of creatives who were influential and it's kind of grown from there and it really is the kind of other than the Oscars I would sort of say it's the is the invitation to get to and I was just really my heart sang because there was some amazing LGBTQI representation there and for me it was just amazing to see people that now are actually really influential and really in power being asked to actually be part of this because you know as you know you know the the creative world is very much driven by queer people mm. and you know to see the expressions of you know the these different queer people and how they was how they chose to dress at the Met Gala was just you know it's astounding I mean some of my favorites were there's a a, a, a trans woman called Nikki um, who does this Instagram and YouTube channel called Nikki Tutorials 
and she's the most followed trans person on all social media. And she did a really, really amazing um, outfit that was all based around Marsha P. Johnson, who was a trans woman who is said to have actually started the Stonewall riots back in 1969. So she actually, she was the first person that hit back towards the police. Um, And so for her to pay homage to Marsha P. Johnson, who always gets forgotten about because, you know, it's, of course, like all these things, it was it was white gay men that started Stonewall, but actually it wasn't. It was a black trans woman that started it, you know, and that gets forgotten about and, of course, whitewashed in, you know, even queer history. So it was really amazing to, to see Nikki doing this. I thought, you know, for me, it was really, really, yeah, really heartfelt. The other people I loved was Elliot Page, who's also a, a trans man, and they made a very, very subtle comment towards Oscar Wilde just by wearing a, a rose and a certain green colour. Mm-hmm. That is what Oscar Oscar Wilde wrote about. And then I think my favourite was Little Nas X. I don't know if you saw him. No. He came with a gold cape. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He took it off and then he looked like C-3PO. And then he took off C-3PO underneath that was like this gold llama catsuit. <laughs> and he's a black queer man, you know. Is a rap star, you know, how amazing is that? Just celebrating his queerness, you know, it's just, He yeah. was amazing. I didn't know who he was. I don't know how half of his people were. I just, I just watch it for the clothes. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was amazing. I loved it. And he had like, he had guys with him in um, black tuxedos, didn't they sort of taken off, unpeeling the layers. It was a real celebration moment. I felt like it's just, it's just joy when you see people like really, playing with fashion in that way what did um what did the first person wear what was she he she wearing um nikki tutorials was wearing um it was just a a a blue dress but it was really embellished with flowers um i can't remember what designer um made it but marcia p johnson was famous for always wearing like a big sort of bouquet of flowers in her hair as a sort of garland around her head so the dress was in was in sort of representation of that. And actually, I, I follow Nikki on Instagram, and she took the flowers to where Marsha P. Johnson, because she was actually shot Marsha P. Johnson um, on one of the piers in New York, um, not long after the Stonewall riots, and she laid them where she was shot. So oh, I thought, wow. how beautiful oh, is that? And how, you know how affirming for, you know, particularly trans people and non-binary people, but, you know, just for the queer community to, you know, be able to be represented in that way by someone who is clearly an amazing person in themselves by what she's doing, you know, and the YouTube channel and the, the makeup tutorials that she does. I mean, she has millions and millions and millions and millions of followers. It's amazing. Oh God, I need to follow. I need to follow her. I need to send me the name so I can follow her. Well, we'll put it on the. We'll put it when we send it out. I'll. I'll make sure they go out. On the show notes, we can yes. all improve our makeup techniques. <laughs> Definitely something I need to do. <laughs> I don't know about you, Kirsty. As I've got older, makeup doesn't stay on my face. It's the weirdest thing. It's like oh, I put eye makeup on, and it it just doesn't. It don't know what it does. It disappears. It's weird. It just all sinks in, I think. Is it's that just what it is? <laughs> yeah. Absorbed into the body. 
yeah. <laughs> well, we can't That's talk about okay. the Met Gala without talking about Kim Kardashian. Like, that, what? What was she wearing? I found it deeply disturbing, but I think we were meant to. Do you? I, yeah, I mean, for those that haven't seen it, and you probably want to take a little look <laughs> on on social media after, or probably check any newspaper. Um, but yeah, she, it was a it was literally like a head to toe black face covered, whole body covered. Uh, I saw someone describe her as a dementor from um, Harry Potter, and I thought that's pretty spot on. But then it's really interesting. I was reading some other articles and they were saying all about, you know, obviously what she was wearing references back to sort of BDSM and the S&M sort of Mm. looks, you know, where the face is covered Mm. and there's just holes for eyes and mouth, you know. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, we were talking about who knows what it was to represent. Is it a really political thing about the speech of women? Is it about, you know her just shocking people you know but it's very interesting I think that she hasn't said anything you know she hasn't she hasn't explained the outfit I think um my first well the first thing it was like it was like a a, a skin tight bodysuit like it was you could see her lips I think through the mask and everything it was just my first feeling was I, f- I felt claustrophobic and suffocated so it had a real powerful visceral effect on the viewer when you saw it so and then I thought is this about Afghanistan about women being covered and because it was black and it felt very and she had this big cape and we'd be really interested to know and then I think the fact that she hasn't said anything is also powerful because if that is what she was saying then that is also the truth of women women are not able to speak out in Afghanistan they aren't allowed to speak out. You know, they don't have any kind of voice. And not just in Afghanistan, and lots of places around the world. And even in the Western world, there's plenty of, you know, places where women are subjugated and kept in a place of submission. So they don't have a voice. Um, it, was, it was a very powerful, thought-provoking outfit. And I think that's one of the things I like about the Met Gala is it starts, because I don't really follow fashion because I'm not, don't really it's not really been a huge interest of mine but I find that is a it's a talking point and it's a place where there's always a statement isn't there around the pieces that people make so it's a form of expression it feels more like art than fashion although maybe maybe the two things blend I don't know I don't know perhaps they do anyway so um you you love the Met Gala what else have you been doing this week apart from your tax I've been doing my tax return too but I haven't finished it have you? Yeah, no tax return. And then similar to you two, I've been enjoying the autumn tide and just kind of going in the sea each morning. It's been really, really lovely, really lovely. And actually, weirdly, Kirsty, we, we we bumped into you in the sea, didn't we? <laughs> when Dawn and I were swimming. So this is why the whole podcast with you today come about, because you was on our list of people to chat to for the podcast and then we bumped into you and we was like oh let's get Kirsty on next week we've got a slot <laughs> and it all worked Network. <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased it's such a joy here. isn't it yeah it really is what have you been up to Kirsty so um working I work from home and I've also been teaching um 
the an Alexander course in Chelmsford, which has been really great and lovely to be back with people in a studio, which has just been a delight, actually. Quite emotional, returning face to face with groups of people. Um, and we were talking earlier, I spend a lot of time driving my son to and from boxing. So um, I've been immersed in a world of boxing this week. And uh, it's just very interesting watching that um, that develop and my sort of understanding of it. So I've been having an education in boxing this week. Uh, I can't really talk about many people, but it is something that I've become quite curious about. Um, because initially I used to have a sort of, oh, I don't like that, it's violent. Whereas now I can start to see the, the how the body works within it and the discipline and all of that. So I've been getting very interested in it actually. Same way when my eldest son was really into football, playing football a lot, you, you just start to follow mm. that as a body practice. Yeah, mm. it's been a nice week. And I quite, I'm quite enjoying the change of weather, just this little autumnal breeze coming. It's been really nice. Change of weather, are you joking? It's been flipping breezy and wet all summer. <laughs> <laughs> I think if anything, it's a bit warmer. It's warmer, but it's got that kind of, maybe it's the yeah, darkness. Yeah. I think it's yeah. the darkness, the, yeah. the day being shorter. So I don't feel disappointed that it's not sunny. Maybe that's it. I'm accepting now because we're in autumn. <laughs> it's doing what it should be doing yeah, rather yeah. than oh. having a whole summer like it. <laughs> So I'd be interested to know a little bit more about um, before we crack on with talking about Alexander technique. How do, or maybe maybe it'll, you'll feel it'll evolve better later in the conversation. You can say, but how does um, Alexander technique and boxing sit together? Because to, in my head, I'm thinking I see Alexander technique as something very soft, very mindful, very intuitive, whereas boxing feels kind of a very doing thing and it kind of and a bit aggressive. How do those two things merge in your head? Well, it's interesting because often when I've taught Alexander, um, I often say it's a pre-technique. It's something you learn and can apply to everything. Um, and that was certainly my introduction into it. In a, I was in a conservatoire training, you know, dance school in London, and we had the Alexander technique as, as, as you know, we had ballet and we had, you know, contemporary and we had all these other lessons. We also had Alexander technique. And there's resident um, Alexander Technique teachers in lots of performing arts, like the National Theatre and at the Globe, there's a resident um, Alexander teacher. And uh, we've had some sort of spokespersons for the technique. And I know Sebastian Coe was really a big Alexander, um, you know, person who really sort of talked, talked it up. So a lot of um, athletes have, have, do, have done the Alexander technique. And when I'm looking at boxing now, I'm looking at the footwork, I'm looking at the flow, I'm looking at the sense of direction, I'm looking at following through with movement. I'm looking at being able to almost slow down time to, to make a decision, so not be sort of a rabbit in the headlights. And all of this is part of the Alexander technique. And also about how to to not always be on your habitual side, to not always lead with your right side, maybe do things with your left side. You know, um, the person that uh, my son sort of sent me an article that um, AJ, Anthony Joshua, who's in camp at the moment, boxing, his trainer has, has sort of mentioned 
the Alexander technique. I think his name's Joby Clayton. And he's talking about the head neck back relationship, which is a sort of fundamental thing within the Alexander technique, sort of how we use the spine really and how the head is, you know, balanced on top of the spine and how we're a fluid thing, how we work with flow. So it, even though it seems like two ends of the spectrum, as I've started to understand boxing a little bit more, I can really see how it would really benefit. Also the technique, um, I often say it's like a reset. I think of when I used to watch um, Buzz Lightyear, you know, Toy Story with the kids and, and Buzz gets all, start speaking Spanish and they have to find the reset button. So he becomes, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Alexander Technique has this idea of a reset, you know, go and lie in semi-supine, take a moment, reset yourself. And I think in terms of um, performers, when they're taking on character roles and they're doing eight shows a week, you know, and they might have a sort of stance that inhabits the personality of the, the character they're playing. You know, if they're doing that for six months, their body is going to be complete mess. So they do need a reset. And so it's, I think that's also part of why the technique may be really helpful for boxing as well. You know, sort of what to do afterwards, how to sort of come back down to earth and how to realign yourself very simply. So just some really simple ways to sort of come back into the body. So Kirsty, you kind of alluded there that you know you, you you started your life off as a, a a dancer and that's what led you to Alexander Technique but was there certain things that you felt you 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 needed from the technique or what helped or the technique helped you to to carry on dancing for some time once you learned it well probably a combination of both of those so mm. when I was training I never forgot semi-supine, which was lying down, which was always great, you know. <laughs> so I always remember that part of the technique. But um, as I got older, um, you know, I've got hypermobility in my lower back. I kept getting back, you know, you start to get these sort of work-related injuries, really, um, when you're working with your body all the time and, and working for different choreographers and things like that. So um, it was really sort of, this reset, this, this thing I had that helped me throughout my career. Um, but then when I hit my 40s, I remember I was, I teach a lot of dance and I'd be traveling around the country and, um, and I, I started to notice that my body just really, how it felt to me at the time was really failing me. Like I, you know, I couldn't jump on a train with a rucksack, go and teach at a university, then go and teach a care home you know like do all of the work that I was doing sort of with movement creative movement and my practice went very much to working with movement in health and I started to have um, real back problems and that that wouldn't sort of recover so quickly and um, so I I started looking into seriously thinking about training as a way of transitioning from my movement practice into another way of working um, and that was my transition really and it's been amazing sort of so going from being you know a dancer and a dance teacher and working very much in that way to then training and then working one-to-one -one with people and now I'm sort of in this place where I do the the two really um, but well, yeah 
it was definitely a sort of lifeline for me because I I was sort of crawling into sort of an osteopath's room every two years and then every year and then every six months and then every six weeks you know and I suddenly realized um you know that thing where if you don't listen the body just gets louder <laughs> and something was mm. clearly not working so mm. yeah. what sort of dance was it you were you were so I trained, I trained at uh, somewhere called London Contemporary Dance School, or it's known as The Place. So I, was, I trained as a contemporary dancer. Um, but I also did commercial work because anyone who knows much about contemporary dance, there's not a lot of money in it. You know, it's theatre and arts funded and um, small. Um, there are some big companies, but on the whole, you're sort of working on small contracts a lot. Um, and you always do other work alongside it really well that was my experience but um but I also um had an agent and I you know did commercial work because I before I'd gone to a contemporary school I'd done sort of the usual ballet tap and jazz and um so I did uh, sort of things like um I got my equity card um by I went on a world tour with the pop band Bros. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> did, you have bo- did you have bottle tops on your shoes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were it red or dead, they were by the shoes. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what I remember, Bros, because you yeah. could get them in the back of um, those magazines. Oh, what was oh, it? Like, yeah. like Smash It's magazine. You could send away for... The red or dead shoes, couldn't you? And I always wanted a pair of the ones with the Grosh bottle tops on, <laughs> or the or the sheriff ones. <laughs> I remember that shop really well in um, in Covent Garden. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I did quite a bit of commercial work for probably about five years of my dance training alongside smaller, more arts-based stuff. I'd do you know, pop videos and backing dancing and hair shows and you name it, you know, um, which I liked, actually. It was good fun. It was nice to sort of marry the two together and um, and enjoy that part of, you know, dancing for fun in that way. Yeah. Sounds really, really exciting. So I bet you had a real great life in your 20s and 30s. Yeah, I mean, it was... You know, when I look back now, I think, wow, I, I met a lot of people, I travelled a lot and, um, you know, still have some friends and, you know, I went to amazing parties and, uh, yeah, I look back and think I was really lucky, really lucky to have experienced all of that um, in, in my early 20s, really. And, um, and and then not feel that I was searching for that. You know, it just kind of happened. And then Mm -hmm. I sort of, you know, what I found was I loved teaching dance, contemporary dance. So after a while, I, I, you know, I'm very passionate about my practice. So that became the more important thing for me, um, sort of than sort of carrying on that line of commercial work. I think you'd have, it's, it's tough it's tough auditioning and not getting the work and all of that so you have to really want to do it and I think I sort of loved it for a while but my, my sort of heart lied somewhere else really so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you said I was that- in London for 20 years really yeah. <laughs>
you said that um, your body started to break. And I think that's a familiar thing that a lot of people listening to the podcast will be able to relate to because wherever you are in life, whether it be in a particular profession or just walking through life, you're having a pretty normal job. Um, our body, there's an, an expression, I can't remember the name of the author. It'll come to me in a minute. The body holds the score. You might know the name of the, do you remember the I name? Know who you mean. You know who we mean. It'll come to us in a minute. It's my age, never remember anything. Um, so the, the body does hold the score. And I think oftentimes, especially when we're younger, we ignore it. So our body's telling us something doesn't feel quite right. And we just think, well, we just got to suck it up and get on with it. Um, we, have, we, we don't have to um, change anything. It's a failing in us that we feel that way versus actually this is our body communicating with us via pain. Um, and so you said there came a point where I just had to do something different. And that's where you delve, began to delve more deeply into your Alexander practice. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of things. So I had a few transitions. So I'd say in my twenties, I was very much dancing, teaching and doing commercial work and contemporary work. Then in my thirties, I'd moved more into um, sort of working with people living with illness. So I was working in children's hospices and hospitals, psychiatric units. I got, you know, I was very drawn to working in that environment. Um, and that sort of coincided with, so coming from a very traditional technical background, I started working with more of a somatic practice with practitioners like, um, uh, doing a technique called Skinner releasing technique and um, uh, loving the body of work of Anna Halprin who works with health and sort of life art um, where those two meet and I was lucky enough to meet her in California and um, and then I have a teacher down in Devon Helen Poyner who's um, uh, should, should be called a non-stylized um, environmental movement artist. And she's also a movement therapist, but she's, she's prolific and amazing. She, I, so I started working with all these people working in, from a very kinesthetic place, sort of from the inside out, from a very deep cellular fluid place. Um, and that that's really was the catalyst. Um, and I used to look at the Alexander training and just think it's three years, 1600 hours of training. I can't be, I don't know if I've got it in me because it felt quite mm-hmm. full on sort of. Um, but I slowly, as I, I've started taking up lessons again, it really just clicked and I felt ready. So I was ready also to let go of being a dancer because mm-hmm. that's a, I mean, I think you're always a dancer and I still do teach movement and dance and perform, but to really let go of that as being the big thing was is hard, actually. It's a, I, I heard someone talk on the radio on Desert Island Discs or something, saying that dancers have two deaths, you know, their own, and, and when they stop dancing. Not that I, you have to stop dancing, but I do feel that if you've done that from an early teen, that's what has defined you. It's quite a big thing to let go of, mm. you know. And, and there is naturally, isn't there, a, you know, a, a point when our bodies do fundamentally start to change as we, you know, for many of us, 
who are fortunate to reach middle age, you know, we, we notice our bodies changing significantly. And you can understand that what you could put your body through as a 20 or 30 year old suddenly is incapable of doing that from, you know, 40, 50 upwards, because, you know, there's so much changing within ourselves, isn't there? As we start to age, you know, we, we generally dry out. So the joints get, you know, tighter, the muscles get tighter, you know, we, we, we find, you know, our sort of cycles are changing as well, particularly for those that, that menstruate, you know, that that changes significantly, which we know has a huge impact on the body and the mind and the hormones. And, you know, so staying, staying dancing, <laughs> you know, actually puts a lot of pressure on the body, doesn't it? You know, mm. to, to work at that level. And yeah. I, I think it's astounding when you see people that do still dance, you know, at a professional level from sort of middle age onwards. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing because, you know, they're up against so much, let alone the stigma <laughs> of, you know, being an older person who dances. As you're saying that, Daniel, I just want to ask a question. Is there, um, Kirsty, in dance, like why why can't dance just adapt to people's body getting older and doing slightly different things? Like if, if, as I'm listening to this conversation, it feels a little bit ageist. Oh, it has, it does. And it has, it definitely has. And actually, um, I think it was more that my way of working as a dancer had to change. Mm. Um, but there is, um, yeah, there's a whole body of elder dancers now that are just doing phenomenal work. And then, um, don't know if you've ever heard of Pina Bausch. Um, amazing. She's she's no longer with us. Amazing company. If you ever get to see any of the work. And she had a piece that was, I can't remember what it's called. It's so brilliant. And she had three generations do the same piece. And depending on what night you got, you either got 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds, or 70-plus wow. do the same work. So there's a big, you know, there is, oh, there's a whole body of working, you know, and that's why I still say I do still perform and I would still, I do still dance, but not, not in that way that, um, you know, not in the way that a 20 year old does. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think interestingly, your body, you get much more intelligent with your body. Yeah, absolutely. But you can't, but I couldn't do, you know, I used to teach BTEC, you know, I taught BTEC for six years part-time I couldn't do that now I couldn't teach teenagers you know for six hours practical classes and then go out and you know do all my other you know the the momentum the energy I had to teach and dance and live a life and <laughs> I couldn't do all that now no. but that but it is um yeah there's some amazing elder dancers and actually Anna Halpin who I mentioned died this year and she was a hundred and she was still teaching and and performing she, up till about ninety eight. She was incredible. Wow. She the, she was she the lady that was really tiny with black hair. Uh, tiny? No, I don't think so. Thinking of somebody else. Another might be actually it might be a yogi that I'm thinking uh. of. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We'll we'll put Anna Halpern in the show notes, and then we can yeah. check her. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear because it's nice to think, you know, in this more evolving society, hopefully in some ways, that 
as we age, we, we as a society adapt and respect the aging process and adapt and respect you know the qualities that age brings is you know there's a great beauty and wisdom and depth that comes with age and i think we ha- we do have a bit of a youth obsessed culture mm. you know t- talk to me talk to us a little bit more about you know what exactly is the alexander technique because there might be people on podcasts who've no idea what it means you know when i first heard about alexander technique it was because an Alexander teacher told me to sit up straight and immediately put my back up. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's very bad for you to slouch. I was like, thank you. And they're like, I'm an like, Alexander teacher. I was like, thank you. Go away. <laughs> you might probably right. I probably was slouching. So tell us, tell us, uh, tell us what 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 exactly it is and you know where it came from and so on. So it's probably um, people often think of it in terms of posture. Mm. Um, but really it's about poise and alignment and flow and all these other things. Um, so really I would say that the Alexander Technique is a body practice um, teaching you how to, to use your body better, you know. And the problem is, is that we all have very bad habits and we all are, are in a world where we have ridiculous chairs to sit on we spend too much time on the computer. We work too much, too much time on screens. Uh, when we go to school, we're taught to write at four when really we should wait till we're a bit older because not everything's formed in, you know, in the body to start that fine motor skill. So really the Alexander is an undoing of bad habits um, in a very, very gentle hands-on way. So we do look at alignment and poise but not in a sit up straight because that's just going to give you a startle reflex and stiffen your body. And that's not helpful and it's not sustainable. So what we want to do is trigger the, the muscles closer to the spine. That's what I'd call the scaffolding muscles that um, don't fatigue. So just engage those again, like a toddler does, you know, they just, they're just in their body and they're, you know, they're, they're leading with their head and they're in their pelvis and they're, they're, they're moving brilliantly. Um, and then what happens is we we get all these habitual patterns and through go through adolescence. So we start to get you know round, or if we're too tall, we shrink, or if we're too small, we throw our head back. So we get all these habits, um, and the body, the the muscular structure just starts to fix in these other places. So by doing the Alexander technique, we just start to undo some of those habitual patterns gently so so it will feel very very hands off um and it and it feels like a treatment although it's called a lesson um because the idea is that we can give you some skills that you take away and you develop yourself and you can practice in everything you do like a pre-technique so the way you pick up a glass the way everything you do sounds like it might be meticulous and boring but it's weirdly interesting and quite inspiring when you start to feel that your body starts to move better you've got more ease and you can apply it to your tennis or driving a car or your yoga that you're not you're suddenly noticing oh every time I do that I do throw my head back no wonder my neck is getting stiff so you start to have these aha moments um, when you have lessons and you start to do things slightly different and just those small, small changes make a difference to how your body starts to work. 
Um, it's very hard to explain without seeing it as a hands-on, um, you know, experience it because we're also working with the parasympathetic nervous system. So you're really looking at coming away from the fight flight, which I know lots of other techniques are doing too. Um, so, but you're really looking at coming into that place of quiet. Um, not that you've got to walk around like a peaceful thing the whole time, you can still be dynamic. Um, but it's just a lovely moment where you cannot be overriding your nervous system the whole time. So you just have a deeper listening and understanding. Mm -hmm. um, but you also, the, the other thing I would say about the technique is it works with this, this thing called directions. Um, and it's quite hard to explain, but really everything we do, the brain does first. Um, you know, every hand in my, everything I'm doing, my brain has, has, it works so fast, it will get my body moving. So we're looking at those neurological pathways as well, which is why it's, um, Alexander has a lot of success with Parkinson's patients actually, um, because of that, uh, you know, relationship to re with the body and the mind and how, how we can, if we can think it, we can do it. A bit like when an athlete is all wired up and imagines they're, their run or whatever they're going to do and everything fires off all the muscles fire off even though they're lying there still it's the same idea that we can think it we don't need and in yoga I'm not a yoga teacher but this idea that you can lie lie in corpse pose and that is as important as anything else that you do in a yoga session because you're you're releasing your your body and you're listening to what's happening you know if, if the rest of the class are doing something really difficult doesn't mean that you're missing out if you then decide to lie in corpse pose that's my understanding but I might be wrong there but um how how we can be active in stillness mm. yeah, yeah. The, the power of the mind yeah so, you know I've, you know uh, is something I use quite a lot in yoga therapy with clients is you know, they may come to see me with, you know, a, a, mecha a mechanical physical issue, you know, and that mechanical physical issue is then stopping them from doing something. And part of what I may do is, you know, take them into some form of meditation or a yoga nidra and allow them to, to visualize or see themselves or recall themselves doing that thing that they feel deprived of in that moment. And what it starts to do is build those neural pathways back to connecting with that part of the body. So then when they are ready to, you know, say if it was a knee issue and they were unable to walk unaided, you know, they know at some point potentially they may be able to do that. But tapping into those memories, those expectations and those emotions around that is such a powerful thing. Because yeah. as you said, it all starts within the mind and the mind then controls what is happening within the, the physicality of yeah. ourselves. Yeah. How long has the Alexander technique been around for? Um, I think uh, I'm going to forget his date of birth. I think Alexander was born in something like 1869. So what's interesting is he, he's, he's said to have recorded a saying in, in the 1920s, how busy everyone was, <laughs> how crazily busy everyone was. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it, it, and, and actually, so Alexander was an actor 
um, and he kept losing his voice. Um, and so, and he went, he tried all these different things and what he, nothing would, nothing would help. As soon as he got on stage, he would lose his voice. And um, he was known as the breathing man initially because he, this coming to stillness and working at these holding patterns that we have working with the if the body's working well then the breath is working well that we we don't need to interfere um so he he worked on himself for three years surrounding himself with mirrors and 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 looking at how what he did his tiny micro movement habits when he spoke or something um and then he when he came over to england he he set up at Harley Street and he had, he had a lot, he's, there's a lot of success with asthmatics as well um, with the technique. Um, and he worked really with sort of quite the wealthy, really. It was probably quite a middle-class um, thing that people went to Alexandra. I know a lot of royalty um, have, have had Alexander lessons um, because of standing and sitting and, and how not to fatigue doing all of that um, for long periods of time. Um, so he was really um, very successful in sort of upper circles, I would say, initially. Um, and then um, when I was training as a dancer in the 80s, a lot of um, my teachers were training in the Alexander Technique and it started to sort of come through into other fields. Um, in a more sort of more open to everybody. I mean, it probably was open, but I think a lot of these things were really that most people didn't go and have a treatment in the sixties. Yeah. You know, they just didn't. You know, just go to the doctor. There's quite a few sort of similar-ish techniques, isn't there? That are very sort of somatic based. Like, is it the Feldenkrais? Yeah, Feldenkrais program. Yeah, and he trained with. He started his training with. Alexander and then went off into his oh okay um, yeah yeah I have quite a few friends who I've I've done quite a bit of Feldenkrais I've a couple of friends who've trained in Feldy and it's an amazing technique as well yeah I've I've noticed it showing up quite a lot in the yoga world but I suppose there is that junction between therapeutic application of yoga and these practices that actually you know are really honing on in very specific patterns or habits that we have within ourselves, which yeah. essentially is a therapy. Yeah. And I think we also find our, our way, like what works for, you know, why did I choose to be an Alexander teacher and not something else? Or, you know, is we've, we're all speaking the same language. We're just all coming in from slightly different angles. And I think the, and I love that. I love the fact that it, it can all be translated and, you know, it can stay as its pure form, but it can also really sort of dovetail into other things. I was think I was just thinking. I'm. I've, I ha I've had a Alexander technique session. I think it might have been been with you. I can't remember, but I remember. I do remember thinking this could be very powerful, and I must come and have some. That's my second thought. But also. I think even if you've got a, like a long-term discipline, you know, for instance, Daniel and I both have a long-term discipline in practicing yoga. I think unless you are working at it as a practice, 
So you're using the technique to stay present and aware. And the word I would use is curious about your body. You can still pick up some habits, can't you? Within the practice that you're performing. Because I know that if I start to become unconscious in my practice and it becomes a bit rote-like, which can happen when you have got a lot going on in your personal life, for instance, you can sometimes find that bleeds out into your practice and you know the two things hopefully merge but they can become almost like I go off to do a practice and then I do my personal life and then I think some we can all pick up those bad habits in in the way that we hold ourselves the way we breathe and the way we process so do you feel like that's something similar in Alexander technique is like is that really what the message is is about being present in your body being intuitive, being curious and interested so that we can live in a way in our body that's more wholesome and more intuitive, more having, I like to think of it as having a sense of freedom in your body. Yeah, I absolutely feel that the willingness to remain curious um, and have a sense of wonder. All of these things are really important in terms of keeping it alive, bubbling away and, you know, noticing things and noticing how you can sort of, how you are relating. And I, and I also can really relate to when you've gone into robotic kind of like life work, you know, we, we all fall into that and it's how we snap out of it and wake ourselves up from Mm -hmm. it. and my, um, and I suppose I have to keep learning. I, I realise I've studied for 14 years with different, you know, I've done my dance training. I've done a Sir Ed. I, I, I did a dance degree later on. I, I trained with Helen for five years, you know, not full time, you know, but over a year sort of go down and have a yearly programme, but it's not full time. And then three years with Alexander. I feel like I, every so often I feel the need to, keep learning so that I keep keep alive with it all and and it's not a it's not like I have to do it it's my curiosity gets the better of me and I have to the thing I have to do is rein myself in and think I don't really don't need to do another course on that (laughs) you know because it's there's so many fantastic courses out there (laughs) Kirsty would you be able to teach us a short practice yeah, uh, I can. I could. Uh, yeah, I could do a little thing if you want to do something. I, yeah, I, I think okay. it might be quite interesting. Or I, I'm intrigued, and I'm sure listeners would be intrigued to maybe um, experience what the Alexander technique is, or you know, have an idea of what you know how it would be approached in a in a class or in a setting where someone like yourself would be leading. Yeah. So normally I would teach one-to-one, but I am just starting to do group classes, which is sort of merging my movement practice and the Alexander together. But um, I'll, let's, do, let's do sitting. Let's talk about sitting. So, um, so what I would suggest is that you find a chair that you're comfortable on, a chair that you like to sit on. It doesn't have to be a dining room chair. It can be your sofa. And then... Find your sitting bones. So you're not gonna use the back of the chair at the moment, just find your sitting bones. And then if you are on a sofa, get some cushions behind you so that you're not 
holding yourself up being good that's the other thing I, you know being good just in my mind leads to stiffness you know so like what you just said earlier dawn someone telling you to sit up straight you know it's just like a oh. so i don't want you to be stiff i want you just to find your sitting bones put some cushions behind you so you can use the back of the chair and then just allow the feet to be probably their hip width apart really so just two feet on the floor just allow them to soften Make sure they're not tucked under you or too far away from you. So they're just falling down from the knee. And then I'm gonna ask you to place your hands somewhere on your thigh bone, but not down. So not the palms of the hands down. So you've just got an upward hand. So you've, you've just allowed the arm to, to open. And we're just gonna think of a direction. So you've got your sitting bone on the, on the on the seat and then just imagine your spine bubbling upwards so it's just a lovely long spine it's not straight the spine has many curves in it so just enjoy those curves and I want you to imagine your head is just balanced delicately on the top of the spine the occipital joint and just notice where the breath is so whether you're holding the breath, whether you're tight in your throat, whether you're holding at the back of your neck, your shoulders, and a place that we often are gripping is our belly. So you don't need to do that. You're thinking up through the spine, just allow the belly to soften, the jaw to release and the eyes to soften. And then just for a moment, if you take one hand and just place it on the crown of your head, it's very delicately. So not, make sure it's not too far forward. You want the crown of your head and that's where you're gonna think up from. So just give yourself that visual aid, thinking up from the crown of the head and then place the arm back down. And so we have these three sort of sets of feet really. We've got the feet that are on the floor and they're just softening into the floor. And then we have these sitting bones that we can also say are like a, a little feet that we can sit on. And then we've got the top vertebrae and where the skull meets. So where the skull is balanced on the top vertebrae, just allowing the head to rest. And the head is very heavy. It's, you know, around 14 pounds. So if we're having our head tipping forwards or tipping back or to the side all the time, that's quite a lot of strain on the spine. So we just want to find a place of balance, but we're not staying rigid with that. We can do a tiny yes or a tiny no with the head if we feel that we're going into a tight holding pattern. And as we're sitting there, we're just gonna allow the arms to fall away from the shoulder girdle. Notice if there's any tension in the legs. And just come to the breath. So just watch the ebb and the flow of the breath. Allow in the intercostal muscles of the ribs to soften. So when we're breathing, we're breathing in our back, the sides, the front, we're breathing in the, the whole breathing body. 
And we almost want to think of that idea like a, an accordion, you know, just this lovely ebb and flow of the ribs. And we just stay with that for a moment, thinking up through the crown of the head, allowing the back to widen, spine to lengthen, softening the tissues of the face, and just come into stillness. And just stay there for a moment. Just noticing any holding, don't change it. Just notice and just allow the breath to be easy. And then when you're ready, you're gonna slowly open the eyes, soft eyes. And just come back into this space. Thank you, Kirsty. Mm -hmm. It's really, really interesting how, for me, how much we move <laughs> involuntary yeah. movement. And it's almost like the body's sort of like shifting and realigning and just kind of getting itself where it needs to be. Yeah. And I, I noticed for a little while I was sort of swaying backwards and forwards and then that stopped and I sort of went still and then I had a little involuntary movement in the roof of my mouth that then made my <laughs> shoulders change and then <laughs> that changed my breath. And, it's like, yeah. and just on the outside, no one else would know that is happening. <laughs> but inside it feels quite dramatic movements and shifts, doesn't it? There's a whole world in there that I, I talk about the sort of inner landscape is so rich. Um, I think Alexander said, um, if you stop doing the wrong thing, the right thing will happen. And what we often do is we correct ourselves. So I'm going to use your example of sitting up straight again, Dawn, but sit up straight. We're just doing another bad habit, another holding pattern. So what we want is just to encourage the body to find the right because it knows it. What All I'm teaching you is what your body already knows, what it used to do. So I'm just encouraging you to find that way of being when you felt freer. And so we're not correcting. So if your shoulder's up here, don't push it down. Just just talk to it. Allow it, to, you know, just, just have a wish, you know. Just allow the breath to be easy. And over time, it will come back to where it is it will remember where it's supposed to be. But if we pull it down, we won't, we won't sustain it and it will ride back up again. Because this idea of being good all the time, being right, give up that, <laughs> give up being right. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of giving up being right. I think um, I try to very much in my teaching and in my personal life, be in a place of being with how it is. Mm. Because I can't be anywhere else in reality. Um, and the other thing I want you to just quickly address was trauma. I think we all hold trauma in our body. And I think we have layers and layers of trauma. Um, and I guess, you know, what I noticed is I, as I was sitting and I was sort of feeling 
my spine, as she took us up the spine, I really noticed how my spine felt quite frozen. And I know, I know that what that's about. I know it's from being ill for so for the past two years and being, you know, my breath doesn't never feels quite right. My chest feels like someone's sitting on it all the time. Um, and then all the other trauma that goes around that, other people's behavior towards you when you're not well and the judgment and the polarization that living in a world of COVID versus it doesn't really exist, belief COVID. Um, I can feel, I felt that very intuitively in my spine. And there was kind of a moment where I felt almost emotional and then a softening. And that was really, I mean, I'm aware of that holding pattern already, but perhaps that felt, this felt a little more spacious would be the word yeah. I used. I felt yeah. that that would be the word I used. So, so in terms of working with people with trauma, and it could be any kind of trauma, I guess. Yeah. How does the Alexander technique help with that? Obviously, what you just said about um, it can trigger crying and things like that. So I'd, I'd work very delicately with someone who has a trauma. I think, of course, coming into the body is just is the only way because we do. The body holds everything. Body stories, you know, it's all in there. Um, and I think that's the, I think just working very slowly with someone is very, what's lovely about the technique, it can be very practical. So someone might come, we do chair work, we lie on the table, it's very practical. But as the practice deepens, and obviously because you're both very big somatic movers, you've gone straight in. But for lots of people, it will take a long time to penetrate to that depth. Mm. So I think that's the other thing I love about it. It meets you where you are. It really makes you where you are. If you want it for just some 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 sort of signposting about your body, it will work, and you'll have your six lessons and or 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 eighteen or however many you decide to have, and you'll go. But for others, it becomes a practice alongside. It becomes something much deeper, and both are fine, you know. So it's. But I I was going to send you a little YouTube of a colleague of mine who's looked into long covid um, and i and i know that obviously all of the practices we've talked about would are all really really relevant but he was looking at it in terms of um long covid and alexander technique and actually i have someone who's coming to my group lessons who who came to hasn't done anything came to one less one group class and and there was a big shift for her and it was She's had lessons before, but it was, it was really, you know, the more we can get into our body, however, whatever route we choose, it feels really, really important. But um, one of the things he talked about is how with this, um, I haven't heard of it, mast, mast cell activation syndrome. It, yeah, I, I'm not very up on all the, um, so dysautonomia which is all related to that part of the long COVID, um, how things like meditation, yoga, breathing, and obviously Alexander Technique really tap into mm. how to help someone navigate their way through long COVID. And of course the breath is key. And, I, and it's not about doing breathing necessarily, but just the breath is, is really key. Um, and sometimes, Although we do do something called whispered R's, I, I 
I often invite people just to introduce sighing into their life, you know, just to sigh, because we, we really need to start to drop into what is happening in the in the system. And I think with long COVID, it's these this is where we're starting to see how important these body practices are. Well they're not just body, are they? They're the whole being. Mm. Yeah. I can send you that link of his very technical research, which was really interesting if you want to I see would it. love it. Send yeah. it. I love all that. Yeah. Daniel, you were going to say something. I just I, I was just reflecting on I really I really enjoyed the invitational language, mm -hmm. not the directional language that you used, which you know is for me and I know for other people that you know maybe experience PTSD that can be a, a, a lovely way to sort of allow them to experience without it having to be right or wrong um, and it's really interesting as we've been talking through this podcast I was really thinking about the language that we use around something being good or being bad and we referred you know at times people refer to their body or their back as a bad back and actually why is it bad <laughs> it's just in a learned pattern that with something like this or like yoga or mindfulness or all different sorts of practices you can unlearn and it doesn't need to be bad it is just what it is in that moment and and I, I'm trying to make a conscious effort now about using language that feels more welcome and opening to people. Because mm -hmm. I think the word bad back has such a huge connotation around it. You know, what have I done wrong to cause this to happen? Yeah. And we kind of can disassociate with it. So we sort of put it over there. Sometimes when we've got an injury, like it's not... It's, I'm fine except for this thing over there. Whereas when we can kind of embrace it a little bit more, as, as hard as it is, and I, you know, I can really relate to having a bad back at times. Um, but the, the more I can be with it, A, it seems to recover quicker, <laughs> but B, um, there's just more acceptance um, and then a working together rather than a sort of battle, sort of a big crash. Um, of this sort of run fix me fix me I'll take something I'll get fixed and I'll carry on as I was it's it is an invitation to listen and maybe make some changes mm. which is hard hard for us all <laughs> it really is mm. do you think um I just had this thought you know a lot of children are born in traumatically and they come into the world with trauma already. And then there's a whole um, new discussion around trauma transferring from mother, parent to child, um, you know, just epigenetics, you know, through generations. Um, and I'm just wondering if a baby is born in a very traumatic way, I'm wondering if working with the mother and perhaps the father also around Alexander technique can be helpful to the baby. I know I'm, I practice cranial sacral therapy mm. and certainly if I work with a parent that has an impact immediately on what's happening with the child um, as well as working with the child themselves. 
is it something similar with Alexander? Because I'm thinking holding patterns in the body, you know, they they create an, a different kind of energy. You know, if your if your body's held in a place that's tight, like at the minute my spine feels tight, I know that's affecting my mood. I can feel it, which then in turn affects how I am with other people. So is there anything around Alexander's technique in children or babies? Any research being done? I, I, to be honest, I don't know. But what I would say is, I think absolutely 100%. If one person in the family changes, it has a... And I have a very... Um, this is, bear with me. I have a very unruly dog who, who I haven't really trained that well, except to be very loving and, and not bite people, obviously. And she's she when people come around, she, she, won't, so she won't leave them alone, except for when I teach from home, the days that I teach, I have a stair gate. I, I haven't put the stair gate up, but she will go and lie on the top step and an hour before I start teaching. Wow. She just, and actually before this podcast, she'd done the same thing. So I've shifted my thinking. I, I've shifted in some way. And she knows it and she sits quietly. And she does not sit quietly. She's quite a demanding <laughs> dog. Um, so I, I, I absolutely think it ricochets. And the other thing to say is, um, I think you asked me earlier, Daniel, why I trained. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that led to it was that um, I never knew if I was gonna teach Alexander as a one-to-one. -one. I initially trained to support my work in children's hospices because sometimes I'd do group sessions and sometimes I'd do bedside. And sometimes I might be asked to, to work very um, sensory with someone, in, a child in bed. And I felt that I didn't feel that I had enough sensitivity in my hands to know if they wanted to tell me to go away in, you know, how do I know, you know, how dare I place my hands on someone who is non-verbal and is sick and they may not want me to do that but everyone will think oh that must be lovely it might not be lovely they may want me to put really loud music on and and you know jump around they may want you know so um one of the reasons I trained was because I wanted to have listening hands and and I think that is I think that is a big part of the technique, yeah. Well, I think that kind of leads us beautifully to a question that we ask everyone, which is really around how you take care of yourself. We've touched on a few things, but maybe if you'd like to share with, with us and people that are listening, you know, how you're able to do this amazing work and have a family and, you know, coordinate everything that you do do. Um, I, funny enough, I wrote an article about this um, for dancers um, called Who Cares About Taking Care? Because um, we could be our own worst enemies. We can, we can speak, talk the talk, but do we walk the walk? <laughs> <laughs> and I would, if I'm honest, I'm good and bad at that. Um, but, mo but I do, so I don't drink alcohol. Um, I go to bed early. Um, I don't overwork, so I have one day a week where I don't work because I so I get some space, um, which isn't a weekend where you 
we'll go out and see friends and family and 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 you know all of that try and have a day in the week where I'm I'm not working and it's for my own practice my own curiosity to listen to your podcasts <laughs> um uh, I do do semi-supine every day um I I read and I get I get up earlier than I need to so I can have tea in bed and read just something sort of inspiring um so I have a daily reader um I eat well and and when all of that when I start to get too split and too much drama happens I start to fall apart and I and my back will go or I'll, I've got an eye condition I'll sort of feel that my eye's not quite right and so I, I have a few indicators that you know that I, I call my kind of you know I'm grateful for because they they stop me when I don't want to stop myself so mm. I can feel when I'm over when, when I'm pressing the override button and I need to come back to you know swimming in the sea and take and and I realize I actually like a lot of time by myself I'm quite um I can be really sociable but then I also like a lot of time by myself um, and I hate to look at the diary and it's all mapped out for the next month that horrifies me so social engagements I don't have I try not to have too many um and then when I am out You'll, you'll be dragging me home so I, you know once I'm out I'm out. <laughs> yeah but I just do have a quite um I think with a family and you know life it's you know just having a home and and working is a lot so I do try and take care of myself I don't always succeed yeah it's the perpetual balance isn't it it's really yeah. hard to you and I think we're fortunate, all of us, that we know we need a balance. I think a lot of people are very unconscious in life, not their fault. It's how we're brought up, it's how we're bred. And so they just plow forwards till they collapse using all kinds of substances to try and help them drive through that. But it's really easy to just let the balance go, isn't it? Let it slip when you find yourself kind of either almost in inertia or doing far too much. <laughs> Is that continual tweaking of it that curiosity yeah. internally so that we can stay stay kind of healthy as well and and thriving I want to thrive yeah you know? exactly I do I want to be playful and and you know have vitality and all of those things um yeah so and and be out there in the world I don't want to retreat that's what I don't want to do so I feel like that's the other thing to say about the technique I feel like it's given me more energy because I'm not pressing the override button mm -hmm. fine yeah thank you Kirsty, for your time today it's been just wonderful to hear about this technique and hear about your journey to it and it might be really useful to to maybe just let people know how they can contact you and what you offer in terms of these services and techniques oh I, um, yeah i work from home in lee um so i do one-to-one lessons at home and um so my name is Kirsty Richardson I just you could just email me Kirsty Richardson at hotmail.com um and I'm also I run a course called Alexander Technique in Motion which I'm teaching in Chelmsford it's just a six-week course but I'm hoping to teach it for you guys uh, yeah absolutely so we're hoping yeah. 
probably early next year maybe yeah. um yeah. would be a good time to do it yeah and that's it really that's that's all i do <laughs> <laughs> all you do you do loads <laughs> and the most important thing is you're taking care of yourself while you're doing it <laughs> that's very very important yeah when I say I don't drink, I did used to drink. This is a new thing for me that I've, I've in the last year. So that's that's been my new like thing in my toolkit. Um, mm. It's quite a I, shift. It's quite a shift, isn't it? It's when a you, massive shift, yeah. Uh, especially when you realise I, 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 I've gone through quite a few periods of quite long sobriety. Um, uh, uh, and I just I just think, my gosh, how do I function around all these drunk people? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. You either, you either kind of just, for me, sort of meld into the background. <laughs> you know, your voice is never loud enough because everyone else is fueled by the booze. So, you know, yeah. or, or I just find myself sometimes just avoiding those social interactions altogether and just being like, yeah. I don't, I don't want to come out because I know within an hour I'm going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> It's, a, it's an interesting thing to navigate, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, there's, a, there's a really interesting thing that's just been set up in South End, which is called South End Sober Socials. So they are social events, comedy nights, music nights, nights when you can, you know, commune, commune with other people that are alcohol free. But wow. you don't have to be in recovery to go to them. You could just yeah. want a night off the booze or you might be in recovery or you might be, yeah. you know, sort of toying with the idea of seeing what it's like. But the only rule is there's no alcohol consumed. Which wow. I think it's is a, an amazing thing to do, you know. Fantastic. Because uh, I, I woke up on my 50th birthday and my my husband said, how do you how do you feel? You're 50. And normally I'm quite excited. And I I just went it's sobering and I hadn't had any intention to stop drinking at that point because you know but that um I think it's really interesting that that's the word I used I hadn't thought about it before and then it took me another year or so to decide to completely stop I mean it's reduced over the years obviously but um yeah to completely stop feels very liberating yeah <laughs> It's been a real joy to talk to you, Kirsty, and I'm looking forward to you bringing the um, course to the studio. So um, that'll be exciting. I think I might join you. It'd be good for me. So, Daniel, would you like to round things off? For I us? certainly will do. Yeah, thank you, Kirsty, for your time today. Thank you, Dawn, for being my co-host and all the wisdom that you bring as well. Um, if you enjoyed listening to our podcast, then if you use the Apple app, then please do give us a good rating and give us any feedback that you may have about the podcast. If there's people that you want us to interview or maybe subjects you want us to talk about, then we're really open to hearing your ideas and being guided by you. So until next time, thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next time at From the Heart. Thank you. Thank you.